This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm Shonda Rhimes, and we're bringing you Dominant Stories, created by Shondaland Audio in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project. Once I was dropping a ton of weight and people were noticing that, I remember describing it as feeling like declawing a lioness, making her take up less space. You know, now you're acceptable. Now we're going to treat you, you know, like, like a feminine woman or a feminine body because you're not so much in the way. Hey, I'm Jess Wiener, and this is Dominant Stories, the podcast that helps us reclaim and rewrite the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our bodies, our beauty, our creativity, and our identities. All right. Today's conversation is one that I have been really waiting for and longing for. It's one of the first conversations that actually came to my mind when we created this podcast, and it's on a topic that I really haven't explored very much publicly for for well over a decade because it's so nuanced and it's sometimes controversial, which I'll get into later, but it just isn't often discussed, and that is this question. Can you love your body and still want to lose weight? Does losing weight always mean that you're succumbing to some external beauty pressure? And does it mean that I don't love my body or don't have high self-esteem if I have a desire to change my body? Are these two thoughts mutually exclusive? I told you it was nuanced. So for this incredible conversation, I am joined by Amani Al-Khattabi, who is an author, an activist, and a pioneer in modern media representation. She's the founder and the editor-in-chief of the award-winning MuslimGirl.com, which is a premier online platform for Muslim women's voices in Western societies. Amani has been recognized everywhere by Forbes in their 30 under 30 list, making her the first veiled Muslim woman to be honored in a media category. And in 2020, Amani also became the first Muslim in U.S. history to run for Congress in New Jersey. She is a true trailblazer. I've known her for a while. And yet, I've never really had this type of personal conversation with Amani. And let me tell you, she generously goes there with me and shares about her relationship with her body, her identity, and her significant weight loss. I cannot wait for you to hear this convo. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, let me know about it. Let me know what you think by subscribing, writing a review, wherever you're listening right now. Are you ready? Let's dig in.
Amani, Amani, Amani. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. So it's completely my pleasure. Yeah, I'm so excited to, to be here with you right now. So you know, as you've been listening to the show, we often start talking about our childhood selves on this show because so many of the dominant stories, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves kind of come from our upbringings. And so I want to bring us back to little Amani growing up in New Jersey to start. And I want to talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and what you remember hearing from maybe your mom or other family members around appearance or beauty or body image in particular. It's really interesting because I can actually remember being hyper aware of my darker features as early as kindergarten. Really? It was when I was in a classroom in my homogenous hometown in New Jersey and all the other girls were blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, that I realized that I was different and that I looked different. Mm. And in many ways, I started observing very early on, as children do, that I was being treated differently than other girls. And a lot of it also was tied into femininity and what the definition of that is, what that looks like, how people perceive it, the way that you treat a little girl based on how big she is, or the way that she presents herself, the way that she acts, the way that she behaves. Can you talk a little bit about what you noticed, what you picked up on as a little kid when you say treated differently? Do you have some memories around that? Actually, there's an experience from my childhood that I only recently started re-familiarizing myself with because I didn't realize it carried so much trauma in it. Mm. I actually was suspended for the first time in my life when I was in elementary school. And I was less than 10 years old at the time. I had gotten into a fight with one of my classmates, as children often do. And I had said something to the effect of, oh, I want to kill you. And the teachers and the principals really reacted extremely harshly to that. It wasn't until my adult years that I realized that children of color receive discipline uh, at a much higher rate than their white counterparts do. Yes. But it was traumatizing because that day was our school play. And I had been selected to be the stage director of our school play. So I was in charge of painting all of the backdrops. I was tirelessly working on them for months for a seven, eight, nine-year-old. It was my entire life. And I was so yeah. proud of it. And I was telling my parents about it every day after school. I could not wait until the school place so they could see my hard work. And I got pulled into the principal's office because of this comment that I made. And the principal unilaterally decided to suspend me. Wow. As a condition of that suspension, I was not able to attend the school play that evening. Hmm. And I didn't realize the impact that that had on me at that age. You know, like my backdrops were still used in the school play. And actually, then after the school play was over, they hung them in our school library for years. Wow. So imagine the torture of also going to the school library every day. And seeing your work. And that I never got to enjoy, you know, the fruits of my labor. And I didn't realize that it kind of sent me that message very early on. Like, you are worthless. We just want what you can yes. produce. That my labor is worth more than me as a person. Right. And of course, we know as women of color, that's an ongoing issue for so many of us, that feeling of being disposable, of being used for what we're worth and never being given the credit for it. We see a lot of studies talking about the adultification of black girls, of girls of color in schools, the punishment much more severe, as you mentioned. Yeah. And so I, I think about that 
as the backdrop of how you as a young girl are developing and growing and seeing your place in the world, what were the conversations like for you at home with female family members or all family members around beauty, identity, body image? Like, was that even something that was being talked about at home? It was. I mean, I was always an overweight child, like (laughs) for as long as I can remember. And so even from my earliest years, the word diet became indoctrinated into my vocabulary. You need to diet. You need to limit what you eat. Not until recently, probably in the past year, did I reacquaint myself with the definition of an eating disorder. Because Mm -hmm. growing up my entire life, it was always this assumption that only skinny girls had eating disorders. That's right. And I didn't realize that actually I had been existing with and surviving eating disorders for my entire life. Yeah. And coming from an immigrant family, you know, I'm a first generation American. I don't think that my family really had the knowledge of nutrition or even self care because our entire lives were about survival. So Mm -hmm. healthy eating was seen as a luxury, right? Barely something that we could even afford, you know, organic foods or fresh foods and things like that, you know? So it wasn't even like I had the resources at my disposal that early on to be able to adjust and create a healthy relationship with food. And that wasn't even my family's fault. I don't blame them for that. It was just the, unfortunately, you know, the circumstances and the lack of privilege that we had to live with. Right. And where was the mindset around like, oh, you have to diet coming from? For me, I'll share, it was my mother. I went on my first diet with my mother when I was 11. My mother went on her first diet when she was five, also child of immigrants. And that was the way they were, I think, exerting some control, some care, some protection, because they knew that being fat in this culture was not a positive thing, especially for women. And then I think when I became around the same age that my mom was, dieting was just something I fell into with her. It was like she dieted, I dieted. That's what just was passed down. So I'm curious if that's something you also experienced. I actually never thought about it until you just asked me that question. But the first thing that I just remembered was that my dad would tell me very early on, my father um, would say, one day you're going to be up for a job against a skinnier, better looking woman, and she's going to get it. And you're going to realize how important it is for you to look the right way for whatever it is you're going for. Now that I think back to it, it's like, wow, you know, that was kind of, like you said, in a way, a form of protection that my dad felt like he was instilling in me. It's like, we're already up against so much. Yeah, You're already going to have to work twice, 10 times as hard as your white counterparts. So this is something that you have to do so that you don't miss out even more. Mm. Whether or not that's a, a healthy message to give to little girls, unfortunately, that is the experience for a lot of people of color. And that is something that my parents as immigrants worried about for me. Yes, I can absolutely relate to that. I think there are lots of influencing factors that create these pressures, I think, for us when it comes to appearance. And obviously, for me, I'm a kid who grew up in the 80s. I've talked about that a lot on the show. TV was really important in my life as a kid growing up. I'm curious the role media played for you, Imani, you know, growing up. How did you relate to it? Were you ever aware of not seeing little girls like you on American television in particular? For me, growing up, my entire life, I've never seen a reflection of myself in the media around me. That is what inspired me to create Muslim Girl Mm -hmm. because there weren't girls that I could connect with. And I was always obsessed with magazines. 
the fashion mm-hmm. mags. I would rip pages out and put them up on my bedroom walls. And the girls I always aspired to look like looked the same. They were tall, wafy, childlike figures, fair skinned, light hair, light features. Obviously, that just propelled the eating disorders even more and also yeah. maximized the issues that I had with my self-esteem. I mean, already it's hard enough growing up in a post 9-11 America as a young Muslim girl and the messaging that we get about who Muslim women are, how we're voiceless, how we're oppressed, how we're too disempowered to speak for ourselves. That's Western media telling us that. Yes. And then on top of that, that's not what we're putting in our magazines. People that look like you do not belong here. Actually, the first time that I landed in Teen Vogue magazine in the print issue, that was the moment where I was like, oh, my Mm -hmm. God, you know, now there's going to be little girls that actually can rip a page out of a magazine of a girl that looks like them. And that was something that I never had growing up. I totally get that. And I think when we disappear people from mainstream media advertising, the power of being excluded lives inside of us for so long. But I want to go a little bit deeper into what you just said, because I know you've talked about it as a defining major moment of your life. And that is around 9-11. You were nine years old, right, when 9-11 happened. And you were a Muslim family living in New Jersey. And I know as a result, you've shared a lot about the hardship, the bullying, the tormenting, the racism. You said in an article, a quote, you said, as a child, the systemic hatred of my religion made me feel like I was an outsider in the only country I had ever known. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing when we talk about also just like body types and looking a certain way, it is sociopolitical, you know, because it also tells us who can be American. And for me, I was born and raised in the United States. This is the only home that I've ever known. And so the lack of images of women that look like me in the media only serve to further that sentiment that you don't belong here. You're an outsider. You're not one of us you can't even begin to describe the impact that that has on a young girl on her identity on her self-esteem growing up how that really defines her experience in life yeah i keep trying to imagine you as this nine-year-old as this 10-year-old absorbing the collective fear and hatred and you said it has an impact on your identity at such a young age what messages did you create or were coming to you around your sense of self-worth at that time? Because I'm also juxtaposing that to the challenge you were having in school. And then here comes this national catastrophe moment where then now you're hyper-targeted. How does that land for you as a nine or 10-year-old little girl? It was in elementary school when I heard my first racial slur Hmm. from a fellow classmate. And that classmate was actually also of color. So it was when I was in middle school that I started to hide my religion from my peers, Mm. you know, and they would ask me, I would say, oh, I'm Mediterranean, you know, and uh, I would hope that there was some type of racial ambiguity where they might confuse Mm. me for like a Latina girl or like some other, you know, minority and not an Arab or not a Muslim. And that's a shame, you know, it it felt like that much pressure to avoid being treated differently that I had to hide that part of myself. That was also something that I had to deal with a lot growing up was people really putting all Muslims or all Arab girls in one box of how they're supposed to look, 
you know, mm-hmm. it's the dark features, the dark hair, the, the othering, that type of defining of our image also does a lot to push that outsider feeling to certain groups of people. You know, after I started wearing a hijab, which I, I chose to start wearing a hijab after my first trip to the Middle East. And seeing with my own eyes what the reality was of my people and how Mm -hmm. sharp of a contrast there was between the reality and that image that we propagated in in our media in the United States. I decided to wear the hijab because to me, that was my public reclamation of my identity. Mm. I wanted people to know before they even knew my name that I'm wearing this marker on my head that yes, I'm a Muslim woman and I exist and I'm here. And to me, that was the most powerful way that I could push back against the Islamophobia that was really claiming, you know, sucking the oxygen out of my lungs for my entire life was to really claim that. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that we're, we're talking about it, when 9-11 happened, I had Muslim relatives of mine visiting from the Middle East that very year. It was their first time in the United States. It was my grandmother and my aunt. And they both wore very traditional Muslim attire. You know, they were covered head to toe. And we went to a water park. And my aunt came with me and she went on a water slide still wearing her hijab and her full, you know, Muslim covering. And I was absolutely mortified. I was like, oh my God, everyone's staring at us. They know that we're different, that we don't belong here. You're making all these extra eyeballs on us. And I remember I ran to my dad after we went down the slide. I was like, dad, you won't believe what my aunt just did. And in that moment, my dad told me that's something you should be proud of. Look at how Mm. courageous your aunt is, that she's choosing to stay true to who she is in spite of all of this adversity. Wow. When I decided to put on a scarf, I thought back to that moment, having that example in my life at that early age that stuck with me. Yes. I got a good idea. Let's take a moment to recharge and we'll be back in a flash. Summon your anticipation for an all new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. All right, back to the convo. When you were 13, you moved to Jordan. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that experience of going from New Jersey to Jordan and how that starts to reshape and continue to redefine your sense of identity and and even beauty? The move from New Jersey, where I was born and raised and lived my entire life, to smack dab in the middle of the Middle East for the first time in my life, 
I can't understate the culture shock that I felt. First of all, like you said, I was 13 years old. We all know that 13 is one of the hardest years in any teenage uh, girl's life. <laughs> yes. No matter where you are, it is a rough year. You're going through puberty. You're adjusting to all these changes. You're trying to find yourself and the way that you can express yourself and who you are. When I was going to middle school in New Jersey, I had just started learning to straighten my hair. Mm. My curly, wavy, thick Middle Eastern hair started straightening it. I started putting on makeup in the morning before I went to school. I started dressing like the other girls did, putting on my lip gloss and Mm. things like that. And then right as I started to feel like, all right, I was like getting the hang of how to be a normal girl, I was thrown into the Middle East. And in the Middle East, the culture shock that it brought on, where all the Mm. girls were very covered up, dressed super differently, had different values, different traditions than what I had grown up with in New Jersey. And I was also, again, very overweight. And especially for Jordanian society, I was big. Like there mm. were no sizes in the local marketplace and local stores that fit me at that time. Now it's the plus size movement has grown just so full throttle. But at that time, just going shopping with my relatives in Jordan was a traumatic experience. I would just stay at home mm. because I could never find anything that fit me, let alone anything that felt loose or modest enough to live up to the standard uh, of the other girls the way that they dressed at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to adjust. It was really hard to find myself and find my place, especially after I started wearing the hug scarf, how I wanted to wear it to express my own personal style. It was extremely limited by the sizes that were available to me. Yeah. Also, you know, the box when I came back to the United States, the box that people around me were trying to place me in of what a veiled Muslim girl could do or what she should look like, how she should act. But I think that going to Jordan was one of the best experiences that my my mm. parents ever gave me because it did expose me to my culture and my background. It really taught me to be proud of who I was. It, it instilled in me this new strength, you know, having to navigate all those challenges. I really had to dig deep, mm. you know, and really understand what the value was of having self-worth. And not letting your outside circumstances or whatever society you land yourself in to be variables and dictating that for you. Yeah. And as you're telling me and sharing more of your story in this manner, it makes full sense that as you return back to the United States, you then have this calling to create a community. When you were in high school, you started Muslim Girl as a blog which is then has grown into a major outlet, a resource, a community for so many Muslim women. Talk to me about that calling to create that community and what was the purpose then? I always say, to be honest with you, that when I first made the decision to start Muslim Girl, it was a very selfish one. It was because I was experiencing so much adversity in my everyday life as a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. I was enduring such extreme bullying in my school, in my homogenous hometown that I couldn't find spaces online that could serve as a resource for me. At that time, the only conversations that existed online for Muslim girls were just so outdated and irrelevant to what I was experiencing in my everyday life as a first-generation Muslim American girl. And so yeah, because of the experiences I was having, because I didn't really have anyone in my hometown from a similar experience that I could really connect with, I said there had to be other girls among my generation experiencing Mm. similar things. And maybe if I started a blog online, 
we could all find each other, come together. And then maybe for the first time in my life, I would have some good friends in my corner. <laughs> so yeah, in that way, maybe we could have a support system, a sisterhood where we can reach out to each other for advice of how to survive, how to deal with these issues. And, you know, just really build up our self-esteem, build up our relationship with our identities, which I always say was an experience that was robbed of us after 9-11 happened. Yes. You know, it was really the media trying to shove down our throats what our identities were and not really allowing us the freedom to define that for ourselves. And so that's really how Muslim Girls started. Yeah. I mean, I think about the whole revolution of blogging at the time in which you were blogging was to make the unsaid spoken. I mean, the reason why blogs were so powerful back then was we were coming online to share the things you just didn't share in your everyday life with people. And it it in turn got folks a chance to be seen and heard and understood. But, you know, your work, Amani, is so inherently intersectional, the way that you talk about some of the added layers to appearance and privilege is really important. And one of the things that you've been very candid about is how you also can come from a place of privilege in terms of your appearance and being sort of what you had said as, quote, an acceptable or token type of Muslim woman. Will you talk a little bit about that place of privilege in the way people think about what Muslim women look like? I mean, first and foremost, I'm a light-skinned Arab woman. There's a lot of privilege that comes with that. You know, there is unfortunately still an exotification of what Muslim women look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that for those of us that have features that kind of fit into that mold, it is easier for us to navigate certain spaces. And it's, it's frankly disgusting. I do think that in many ways it is because of my image and my voice that I have been tokenized in certain spaces. And to be honest with you, I've been finessing it. You know, it's been like, all right, if I'm going to be used as a token in this space, then how do I use that opportunity to blow the door wide open so that other girls can come in after me? Yes. That's always been kind of the thought process. It's like, all right, you want me to be the token, like Muslim face and whatever initiative you're doing? As long as I get the microphone and I get to speak whatever I want to speak. Mm. The way that I have kind of dissected it in my mind is that, you know, maybe like about two decades ago, we saw that the Black community was hyper-tokenized. In much of the media that you consume, Jess, that you talk about, you know, we Absolutely. always had like the token Black person that was like the Joker, like the comedic relief. or Always. Yeah, you know, and I always look towards the Black community and the Black movement as kind of the guiding light for where the Muslim community is headed. And so seeing that type of progress that has happened for the Black community to where now, not that it doesn't still happen, it absolutely does, but it's become so much more difficult to tokenize a Black person as, in a certain space because doors have been opening now for the community, for, for people to really be able to get that access based on their merit, Yes, you know, and the fact that they frankly deserve it. And so it can't be about individual success. It can't be about individual access. It needs to be communal. It needs to be mm. all of us coming together to make that possible for all of us. Yes. We're going to start to now turn the corner and talk about the intersectionality of weight and identity. But the reason I'm hoping that the folks that are following along in this conversation recognize that when we talk about weight and we talk about body shape and size, there is so much more than just the physical circumference of our frames, right? Our bodies are the vehicles in which we move through this world and they house 
all of who we are and the things we we carry, our experiences in our bodies. And they become a part not just of our body image, but our self-identity. And so when we talk about weight and size, we are also talking about the weight and the size of what people have lived through in their life. And I want you to take me to where you're at now in high school and post-high school as Muslim girl is growing. Like, where are you in your relationship to body image and your weight? Because oftentimes our attempts at fixing, quote unquote, our bodies or working on our bodies is also a very white, patriarchal, capitalistic pursuit of assimilation, especially if you've been indoctrinated to the diet industrial complex in North America and Western markets. It's like it's sort of just, you know, beat into us that our bodies are works in progress. If you can take me back to sort of now young woman, Amani, in this space, where are you in this relationship to your body image and your weight? I mean, before I even get into that, I want to say spoiler alert that a hundred pounds down later, I still was conditioned to feel like my body was a work in progress. So now rewinding back to that sensitive time, you can only imagine the level of absolute self-loathing that I had for myself. Like I hated myself. I hated my body. I hated looking in the mirror. Yeah. My entire feeling of self-worth was predicated on the fact that I hated my body and mm. how fat it was. The way society is set up, it, it made me really question, is life even worth living if you're fat? That's a heavy, heavy question to ask as a child, as a girl child, you know? Yes. And, you know, at that time, I can tell you that probably one of the most torturous weeks of high school for me was the week that it was a major headline on the magazine covers that Beyonce was on the cayenne pepper diet. I remember that. I lived off of that cayenne pepper drink until I was sick until I was throwing it up because I thought that was the solution. Mm. There were days where I would hide in my bedroom all day, just running in place because I didn't feel comfortable running outside. Didn't, couldn't mm. afford a gym membership at that age. Running in place to the point where I was so dehydrated, I thought I would get water poisoning because of how much I was overcompensating for what my body was missing. Wow truly just like not until this conversation did I really think that deeply into it. But those are experiences that I feel like I buried so deep for years because of yeah. how painful they were and because of how triggering they have been. Absolutely. Yo-yo dieting was, it wasn't even called yo-yo dieting to me. That was just life. That was my body. Right. It was always me existing within this spectrum that kept going back and forth of where I was at with my eating. And I do have to say too, that a huge part of my childhood was the fact that both of my parents had to work full-time jobs to provide for us to survive. And I was babysitting my two baby brothers as early as elementary school. Mm. I think that a lot of immigrant kids have had a similar experience, especially for the girls that are like the oldest in their family, the oldest sister. Yep. So I was stuck at home eating whatever fast food or whatever, you know, like the brownies, the little Debbie treats that I had in the cupboard, the easy access kind of stuff. It was no wonder that I was in the state that I was in. And it's like looking back now, it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, obviously, that's why you weren't losing the weight, you know, but 
it took a long time for me to really correct that journey with my body and with health. That it wasn't about weight loss. It wasn't about fat. It was about health and taking care of you. All right, you know the drill. It's that time. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Oh my gosh, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. All right, let's dig back in. You know, one of the reasons, obviously, we're having this conversation is it's something near and dear to my personal experience as well. I shared, obviously, going on my first diet when I was 11, not by choice, but by kind of family history and ritual. And then for me, food and dieting just became synonymous with girlhood. I didn't know a girl that wasn't obsessed with weight or dieting. Food in of itself was both a weapon and a reward for me. And it kind of creates this very binary way that you start to look at the world, right? When you're dieting and you're doing, and I'm doing air quotes now, doing good, you're good. And when you're not, you're bad. And so worth and weight become really intertwined. And I have been many different sized bodies in my life. I've lived in many different sized bodies, but I absolutely in my maybe mid-20s to about mid-30s, early 40s, put on a tremendous amount of weight on my body. And a lot of that was insulation. A lot of that was comfort. A lot of that was a deep lack of self-care. And I don't mean self-care and like I didn't know the things to do because that's a big misnomer, right, of people who've been dieting, who have carried weight, who live in fat bodies. Trust me, y'all. We know how to diet. We know about food. We know about calories and carbs and all those things probably in, in super specific ways. But for me, what I've untangled is what is weight and what is health for me, Because I think health and wellness can be codified words of diet industry as well if we don't really define what that means. But one of the things that I have been wrestling with a lot and why I wanted to have this conversation with you, somebody else who has released a lot of weight from your frame, as I have too, I've also had a 100-pound weight loss in my life, is – I am actively wrestling with and even talk to my corporate clients about this, the notion that weight does not equal health. Bingo. You cannot tell somebody's health by looking at them on the outside. And I'm curious what that statement means for you when I say it, what you think about. I mean, when I was probably at my heaviest weight when I was in college, 
I remember having a physical exam where my doctor told me that you have the ideal health profile for a person your age. And that to me was very shocking. It's very eye-opening because I even made assumptions about my own self and about my own health because of society's view of fat people. And also the idea that, yeah, being thinner is being better, is being healthier when that's not always the case. Um, you had mentioned that you were gaining weight kind of like to create that padding around yourself, right? Yep. After I got arrested for the first time last year, I put on a lot of weight. Mm. When I got arrested, it became a global viral news story because a first class passenger on my flight complained that I made him feel uncomfortable. And as a result of that, I was unilaterally removed from my flight and then handcuffed and arrested without any question, without any reason. And that was a very traumatizing experience for me. It was hard for me to reckon with that because I felt like even with that experience that I had, it still felt more privileged than my black counterparts that sometimes don't get out of those situations alive. Right. But in the weeks that followed, I secluded myself in my apartment and I was packing on the weight because I knew it felt like it was my body trying to protect itself, trying to create some padding ground it. Even when the very few moments that I left the house, you know, just to like go get groceries, for example, I would put layers and layers on top of my body before I went out, you know, I'd put my hijab on hood up jackets and jackets of layers. And it was me trying to protect myself to insulate myself. Mm. And you really can't talk about our relationship with our bodies without extracting that experience that minorities have to face, especially vulnerable women of color that are on the receiving end of adversity at that level, especially in this moment of time in our country my brown body was worth getting thrown into a cell in a police station with handcuffs thrown on it. It's like, it almost reaffirmed to me like, yeah, this is all that you're worth. Yes. And a defining experience of coming out of that depression that I fell into that trauma was re recognizing that I deserve better, that my body was my vehicle in this world. And I deserve to treat it better than the treatment that I was giving it. Mm. I was putting absolute crap into my body and really packing on the pounds as a result of that. And again, it, it is difficult to talk about because that is not to say whatsoever that any individual that carries weight, it's because they are less than anybody else, or they feel like they're less than them, or they're not worth better. But that was the way that my body reacted to the trauma that it went through. Yes. Well, it reminds me of the story you told in the beginning of being, you know, kicked out of school and the feeling of being a threat. You did document, uh, and I encourage people who are listening, they can go back into the archives of your social media. You documented that experience for you publicly of the arrest and the, and I would say an, an assault from this person and this airline and this industry. And I think what you talk about with trauma, Amani, is really important because, again, when I said our bodies carry with us the weight of what we've lived through in our life, that is what you are talking about. And I think the way we process trauma oftentimes is to reharm ourselves as a way to affirm our worthlessness, as a way to protect, as a way to repeat patterns that feel familiar to us, especially if they've been evident in our life for a long time. And you're right, none of this is to be a substitute for anybody's experience or a roadmap even for what anybody should be doing. But what you make me think about is 
the mixed messages we also get too from the medical community because I was just going to say, you know, I did not have health issues, physical health issues at higher weights in my life. I think where I was most unwell was mentally. I think there you carry a tremendous amount of burden and hiding and self-flagellation around can I love myself and be in this body? And then I started to transition and have a question, which is, can I love myself and want to shift what my body looks like? Is that betraying somehow that self-love? And you have been very vocal and sharing a lot about your personal weight loss. And you made a, a, a long and very important YouTube video that you titled My Weight Loss Journey, where you really started to talk about this. And I wanted to play a short clip for you, a clip that really stood out for me as an example of the relationship between our diet mentality and dominant stories and how they all kind of can weave together. I think you expressed it so well. So I want to go ahead and play that clip for you now. My weight was symptomatic of much deeper issues with my self-esteem, feelings of self-worth, um, like self-limiting beliefs I had about myself, what I deserved, my capabilities. Everything that you just described for me speaks to the literal digestion, and I use that word purposefully, of all the things you just told me about. What does that bring up for you? You know, it reminds me of this instance when I was in middle school. This was still like pre-hijab, pre-Jordan. There was a time where I remember I was, we were in a group project and the seats at our table were limited and I was standing the entire time. A lot of my counterparts were seated and I felt like I didn't deserve to literally sit at the table with them. And then a seat opened up and I still remained standing. Wow. I chose not to take that seat. And thinking about that, it makes me think, you know, the days where as I got older, where I would be going out to eat with my girlfriends and one of my girlfriends would be like super picky with her eating. Like, please make sure there's no dairy. There's no this, there's no that. I need this on the side, whatever. And then I would think to myself, wow, that sounds really good. That sounds really healthy. Like I want to order that too, but then stopping myself because I didn't feel like I was as good as her mm. and I didn't want to create a fuss. I didn't deserve that extra attention on something I was putting into my trash body that was unworthy of something good going into it. Mm. The only reason why I lost weight exactly as I said in that clip, the weight was symptomatic of something much greater. It was once that switch clicked inside of my head where I started telling myself, you are worthy of the best. Your body is worth the best. You deserve the best. Mm. And starting to really condition myself to not hold myself back, to not remain standing when I had the opportunity to take that seat, that was the turning point for me. Yeah, It was going on the inside that changed everything on the outside for me for the first time in my whole life. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I think if, you know, anybody out there who has chronically dealt with their weight, has yo-yo dieted, has been a part of our diet industrial complex, you know, there is a moment. It, I, I often refrain from speaking about this because I don't want it to sound too simplified. But I do think there is a click that happens when somebody who has carried weight on their body begins to release weight in a way that feels measured and balanced and is in alignment with a shift in the mindset and a challenging and a changing of those dominant stories. The click that happens, as you just talked about, that integration of shifting 
around your worth and recognizing that you don't have to punish your body, that you can work with your body. I mean, I remember being a kid being like, well, I'm not going to fall in love until I look a certain way. I'm not going to experience success until I look a certain way. And then, you know, life has other plans. I fell in love with my husband and my life partner at a heavier body in my life. I experienced success all the way through being various shaped and sized bodies in my life. And I think sometimes when you get a chance to recognize that, these things that the world has told you is only yours when you assimilate or when you look like the ideal beauty standard, when you begin to challenge that and really take care of yourself a little differently, as I started to do, then it kind of clicks. And the momentum is very interesting, isn't it, Amani? when the weight starts to come off? Shonda Rhimes and I had this part of our conversation where she also talked about the way the world reacts differently to you, but how she started reacting differently to herself. And I feel the same way. And I'm curious if this is all making sense for you and how it started to feel for you when the weight started to be removed from your frame. It's heavy for me to talk about. And I also use those words very deliberately. One of the reasons why I also hesitate to talk about these things is because I don't want it to seem like all right, if you're fat, it's because you don't think that you're worth being skinny. Right. Because that's not what it is at all. It it really was a lifetime of conditioning that I didn't deserve better. The decisions that I was making for myself that were adjacent to the way I viewed myself worth, that I found myself in the situation that I was or the condition that I was in. And I want to take that a step further to say it also is super tied into what our definitions of femininity are. Yes. Right? You know, it's this idea that in order to be feminine, you have to be smaller. You have to take up less space. And be quieter. And be quieter. Right. And that was actually one of the first social media posts that I made online once I I was dropping a ton of weight and people were noticing that. I remember describing it as feeling like declawing a lioness, Mm -hmm. making her take up less space. You know, now you're acceptable. Now we're going to treat you, you know, like, like a feminine woman or a feminine body Mm -hmm. because you're not so much in the way. And that was something that I always was made to feel, you know, like I said, being in that, in that kindergarten classroom with my other like white girl classmates or blonde, blue eyed, and, you know, just so petite compared to me and my body shape. Yes. And then obviously that then ties back into the sociopolitical aspect that we were talking about, right? The racism of how we define the way people look, what their worth is, what their place is in our society. When you look at it through the definition of femininity, you can't do that without talking about the close proximity to whiteness. Yes. And with the way that society treats us, you know, obviously as a thinner Muslim woman now, I noticed that the world around me started changing the way that it, it treated me. I started to be treated as less of a threat, as more accepted because of that. Let me ask you, did you also wrestle with checking in with yourself about, is my pursuit of this body transformation, is this conforming to Eurocentric beauty standards? Am I being super indoctrinated into like this U.S. and Western-focused view of beauty? Did you wrestle with that? And did you have those conversations with your followers during that time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was an ongoing theme. (laughs) Even within the Muslim community, you know, there are a lot of expectations and a lot of standards that I, in a larger body, felt like I couldn't live up to. Mm -hmm. You know, like one thing that I spoke about 
quite frequently as a plus size girl, not being able to find clothing big enough to be loose fitting or modest on me. It was like, because I was curvy, it was just innately sexualizing anything that I put on my body anyway. And so what did that mean for my hijab? Mm. How can I navigate being a veiled Muslim woman with the body that I exist in? It's been very troubling for me. It's actually still a conversation that I'm navigating as we speak. You know, like suddenly because I could fit into different sizes of clothing, I suddenly had access to different trends. Mm. My style then was evolving and shifting. You know, is that because I was finally free to express myself the way that I always wanted to? Or is that because I was still sweeping into this conformity of like, all right, now you're smaller. All right, now this is the way you have to dress. This is the way you have to present your body. Yes. It's still a conversation that I'm figuring out right now. You know, I'm still in my 20s. And this is something that I am trying to figure out for the woman that I'm becoming and for all of the younger girls that follow me and that look up to the journey that I've been sharing with them and that my peers that Muslim girl have been on as well. It does feel like a responsibility to be very conscientious of those things and and not fall into the trap, so to speak. I share that in so many ways because I think as a public figure and somebody who's been working in the body image and beauty space for well over 25 years, obviously, like, you can see my physical transformation publicly. I have images on social media that you can go back and look in timelines and know that I've lived in different bodies. I shared some of this publicly in 2011 when I started to go on this journey. I wrote a story for Glamour Magazine that at the time, publicly and in my world of body positivity and body image expertise was actually not taken very well. I think people had a strong reaction to me as a woman living in a fat body who talked about wanting to lose weight off of my body and still loving my body, but deepening how I love it and what that means to me. There wasn't a conversation around that then. There wasn't a community. There wasn't vernacular for us to use. It was super polarizing. I was very isolated in that conversation. And that's why in this conversation, I wanted us to have nuanced intersectionality with religion and race and all of these areas because it is all of these things. In fact, the body positive movement, which has now been co-opted by white mainstream media everywhere, was actually started in the 60s by black fat female activists as an exemplification of intersectional struggle, fighting for the right to take up safe space in black and fat bodies. And now it's become a very, you know, markety term for us to talk about body love. And there is so much more to it. So if I have one wish going forward is that we really all choose to deepen the conversation around this. But You know, look, social media doesn't often allow for nuanced conversations, as you well know. And I'm curious, Imani, because you have cultivated an incredible online audience, a global audience that is watching you and following you and challenging you and supporting you as you go out in the world, whether you're running for office or working to change culture within brands and media. I want to talk a little bit about the dynamic of nuance being lost in this conversation around body and beauty and how do you personally choose to challenge that? First thing that I was thinking about when you said that was Sarah Bartman, who's Mm. big, black, beautiful body was put on display like a freaking science experiment, as has been the, unfortunately, you know, the experience of many colonized bodies, especially black bodies, brown bodies that look different than the white 
standard of how a body, especially a woman's body, should look mm -hmm. and how anything outside of that ideal is alien to us and is treated as such. I insist on talking about it because especially today with our hyper-sexualized society and also hyper-superficial society where I have gotten the accusation many times that I've had plastic surgery or liposuction to look the way that I do, which obviously there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those procedures. But this has been a 100% you know, natural journey for me, a health journey for me, because it's one that I insist started on the inside for me first. And it's yeah. not about living up to an outer ideal that society tries to impose on us. It really is about turning inward and building up that self-esteem from the inside out. You know, part of the reason why I was not only open to, but eager to have this conversation with you on this podcast is because I do think that there needs to be more of a space for us to talk about that nuance. Yes. And especially for the girls of color that are watching and listening they need to know that they deserve to know that. And it's not an easy journey. It hasn't been one for neither myself nor for you. It sounds like just, I mean, yeah, for a lot of us, you know, that relationship with our bodies does have a direct correlation with what we think we're worth, what we think we deserve. Yes. And obviously we know that that disproportionately impacts girls of color more than anybody. That feeling that society really tries to instill in us of what we deserve and what we're allowed to ask for, what we're allowed to live up to. And it's only by being transparent about those experiences that I think we can really transform that so that hopefully the next generation of girls growing up have, I want to say, an easier time managing it. To be honest, like as sad as it is to say, I don't know if it's going to get easier with the way that things are going with social media, but at least the way that we are thinking about and talking about these issues, I think is really changing. I do too. And I think, you know, look, we will use social media to have this nuanced conversation. I think because it's such a visual medium, we're so drawn to extremes, right? And we tend to really love before and after photos. We love everything that sort of is an extreme binary difference that we can see. And look, there are some scientific reasons. Our minds love to group in categories like that. And we like to be able to point out those extreme measures. But what I'm hoping people get from this conversation is the nuance, the intersectionality, the journey, the imperfect journey of how anybody gets there. And the reality is you could look at a before and after of me and know nothing about what my journey was like. Nothing. Just by looking on the outside of a person. Um, this has been my big question that I've been wrestling with, Amani, in my life and in my own reconciliation with shifting body shape. And, and I want to pose this to you. Do you think that you can love your body and still want to change it? I think that you absolutely can love your body and still want to change it. You know, I think that's the issue is when we think about changing our bodies, we always think about the superficial aspect of it. But for me, also, a huge part of my health journey has been this realization of gratitude that my body has protected me my whole life. My body has served me my whole life. My body is functioning. Mm. It has blessings and privileges that many people don't get to enjoy in our lives. And those things are so much more precious and more valuable than this fluctuating scale that society tries to tell us about what our bodies are worth based on what they look like. Yeah. For me, 
that wanting to change my body has come from wanting to change it from the inside out, wanting it to be the strongest it can be. Side note, a large part of that, it's been because of the adversity that I've had to face, you know, especially during the Trump years. I was like, oh my God, I don't know, God forbid, when the moment will come where I will be the, on the receiving end of a hate crime. I need my body to be strong in order to protect myself. Mm. It comes in wanting to be able to take care of our families. My parents are getting older now, mm -hmm. you know, wanting to be able to provide for them to the best of my ability, wanting to be my healthiest self for my future children one day. There's like so much more that goes into our relationship with our bodies. I wanted to have this conversation with you, one, because I know you, I love you, I value the complexity of how you go there with me on these topics and help unpack them for public education and public understanding. I guess the last question that I have, and it's something that endlessly fascinates me in the answers, is, Amani, what part of your body could tell the story of your life? My hands. Because I think that the way that my body has responded to that trauma and to these journeys has been to create and to build, to write. Mm. So I think that my hands are probably, you know, the best expressions <laughs> of, of what that experience has been like. Mm. I love it because I think about your hands being the release of all this energy and experience and creativity out in the world. I am endlessly grateful for this conversation. I love you. I respect you. And I'm very grateful for our time together today. Thank you so much, Jess. And truly, thank you for creating the space for us to have conversations like this and to make me feel so safe and even diving deep into these nuances in a way that I haven't even given myself the time or the space to do for myself. So really, thank you for what you're doing. Got it. I feel so grateful to have these conversations and I feel even more excited when I know that we're getting ready to release them out in the world to you and that they'll be here in perpetuity for you to come back and listen to whenever you need it. I knew Imani was going to leave me with a lot to think about and she sure did. I think the big things that are coming up for me is I'm so glad we tackled the idea of intersectionality. Like you heard in Imani's story, you cannot separate out her experience as a Muslim woman and her relationship to weight, body image, and identity. All of the things that she had to carry and experience in her life, the bullying, the racism, the Islamophobia. I said this and I mean it. Our bodies carry with us the weight of what we've experienced. And her experience has this incredible intersectionality of all of these moments that make up what she thinks about herself and those dominant stories. And I'm so glad we had a chance to really unpack some of that together because I hope that we remember everybody's journey is unique. We don't all share the same journey in this area. And I really appreciated that when Amani started talking about the weight loss that she's been experiencing and that it ultimately wasn't about living up to society standards that were imposed on her, especially sort of white Eurocentric beauty standards, but specifically was a result of starting the journey from the inside out. And listen, I know sometimes that can sound trite and so easy, but I'm also hoping that from the conversation you realize there's been nothing easy about it in her life. And again, having the respect and the compassion to hear other people's journeys in this relationship is so nuanced and important 
in answering that question that I asked in the beginning, which is, can you love your body and still want to change it? And there is a lot of conversation around health and weight. And I continue to think we maintain a conflation between two ideas, that our weight equals our health somehow. It just categorically isn't true. Health is so many things beyond weight. You cannot tell the health of somebody by looking at them on the outside. Health is mental health and well-being. There are so many functions of health that go well beyond body shape and size. And I think that's really important to consider and remember, especially in a world where we have a lot of visual imagery with social media that can compare body shapes and sizes, or we still in our media tend to push out unrealistic beauty standards, especially for girls and young girls. So if as you're listening today, any of this really spoke to you and you're looking for some more tools and resources to have this conversation with a young person in your life, I would love to guide you to a resource that I'm really proud of that I helped to create. It is a conversation starter to talk about body confidence with young people in your life. You can go to dove.com backslash the selfie talk. It will give you the tools that you need to do some critical thinking about media and body image and self-esteem. And without a doubt, these are the conversations we need to start having. If you're interested in learning more about dominant stories and how to change them and challenge them, I teach workshops and courses on this, and you can sign up at JessWiener.com, or you can follow me at I'm Jess Wiener on Instagram. And as always, I love to hear from you, and I love to hear about how you are looking at and thinking about your dominant stories. So if you want to, you can write me an email at podcast at dominantstories.com, or you can leave me a voicemail at 213-259-3033. Don't you worry if you didn't catch that info. I'll make sure to put them in the show notes. Next week, we are chatting with the incredible Stacey London. She was the co-host of the iconic show, What Not to Wear. And now she's in a new role as CEO of State of Menopause. And we are tackling aging and how to remove the shame that surrounds us at this stage of our lives. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Don't forget to write a review wherever you're listening. It helps us out so much. And remember, always learning, always growing. Dominant Stories with Jess Weiner is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.